Please pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I was growing up, I wasn't really sure what to do with Palm Sunday. Uh, it was the one time of year when my family would show up to church and we would be presented with palm leaves by the ushers, which we wouldn't really know what to do with during the worship service. It's kind of a weird thing to have in the pew with you. Um, if I remember correctly, I think there was even one year where I invited my friend Joe to church on Palm Sunday. Joe was from a family that did not go to church, and he was a bit weirded out by the practice. Why are they passing out plants, he asked. And I remember not really being able to give him an answer. I probably said something about how it had to do with a celebration about Jesus involving palm branches, but even that might be giving my younger self too much credit. I think I was more aware of the fact that we burned the palm branches later for the ashes for the next Ash Wednesday than I was about you know, what the actual event was meant to commemorate. I definitely couldn't articulate its importance in, to the Christian calendar in the way that I could Christmas or Easter. I'm not entirely sure that this lack of understanding was my own fault, however. My students who come from Catholic contexts are frequently also aware that Palm Sunday exists and yet have no real understanding of why it's worth celebrating other than perhaps as an indicator that Easter is just a week out. So I figured it would probably be worth taking a deep dive into because perhaps others, that, uh, others out here can relate uh, to a sense of not really knowing what to do with Palm Sunday. Um, in reality, Palm Sunday is an absolutely crucial event to remember, and it's, it's very proper that we have a whole Sunday set aside for it in the church calendar. Without the events of Palm Sunday, there is no Easter to speak of. In what follows, there are two major takeaways that I'd like folks to reflect on. The first is this, the procession that Jesus leads into Jerusalem and his subsequent takeover of the temple in Jerusalem weren't just kind of like a protest, they were protest actions, very clearly so. They were acts of civil disobedience. Um, and they clearly indicated a rejection of Roman rule, declaring the arrival of a new political order oriented around Jesus the Messiah. The second takeaway is that this two-part act of civil disobedience that Jesus performs is almost certainly what got him killed. Had Jesus and the disciples not done what they did on Palm Sunday, it's not clear why Rome and the Jewish authorities would have had any cause to collaborate in arresting, trying, and crucifying Jesus. So again, no, no Palm Sunday, no Easter. No Good Friday. No Good Friday, no Easter. Now, that first point that, that, first point that I made, that, that Jesus is performing uh, a two-part act of civil disobedience uh, in this procession and then temple takeover, that's not a new point to this church, uh, and I know that. 
I can remember past Palm Sundays where Rachel E. Scott was worship leading or preaching in which she specifically has called the triumphal entry a, a protest march. I can remember Sarah McDonald making similar comments. Um, and they're absolutely right. I mean, that's, uh, again, that's, that, that's pretty well established, I think. Um, to use the system for classifying forms of nonviolent civil disobedience that was developed by Gene Sharp, the famous scholar and practitioner of nonviolent resistance techniques, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem is a protest march, the same category that any of the protest marches that happened in the summer of 2020 fall under. And the cleansing of the temple is a nonviolent occupation, the same category that the Nashville sit-ins fall under when it comes to different types of, of nonviolent civil disobedience. We all know what a protest march is, so I think we understand why the triumphal entry fits into this category, um, which is why we notice things when we hear the story, things like, hey, the disciples even have protest chants that they call out when they're marching. That's one of them. A nonviolent occupation is any time that you occupy a location with the intent to halt regular business and you don't use violence in doing so, which is exactly what Jesus does. He takes control of the temple premises without harming anyone, halts its normal business operations, and then proceeds to teach and heal people in its courtyard. So far, I think most of us understand these connections. Perhaps less clear, however, is why Jesus chooses these two particular actions. We get why people were marching three years ago during the summer of 2020. People were calling for an end to police brutality against people of color. We get why people chose to sit in at lunch counters in Nashville in 1960. They were calling for an end to the policy of segregating lunch counters. I'm not sure that we understand in a similar fashion what Jesus was trying to accomplish by marching to Jerusalem and then occupying the temple. There are a few things that seem clear if we pay close attention to the narrative in any of the Gospels. First, sometime prior to Jesus' protest action, Jesus had come to see the temple itself as a vehicle for economic oppression of the Jewish people. This seems to be implied when he clears everyone out and he accuses the money changers he drives out of turning his father's house into a den of robbers. The issue here is that commerce in the temple ran on a fairly unique form of what's called Tyrian currency. It's a specific kind of um, coinage that not all Jews had immediate access to. Um, the theologian Drew G.I. Hart once compared this to, you know, when you walk into Chuck E. Cheese and you have to buy Chuck E. Cheese-specific money to do everything in Chuck E. Cheese. Um, it's it's the, basically the same, the same rule. You have to exchange money in the temple to a specific form of currency so that you can do, buy, and sell anything in the temple. If Jews coming into the temple could not provide an animal to sacrifice that met the priest's particularly high standards, and the priest could find a whole bunch of different minute flaws in an attempted sacrificial animal, then that Jewish family that brought that animal to sacrifice would be forced to abandon that animal and then purchase another animal that met the criteria in the courtyard. And if they did not have Tyrian currency used, uh, 
to use to purchase the animal, they would first have to exchange their own coinage into Tyrian coinage, right? The, the system that the temple was running on. If you were a poor Jew in this system, you would be doubly disadvantaged by this particular setup. Um, you would be first negatively economically impacted by the requirement to buy the animal in the first place in order to fulfill your religious obligations. And then you would second of all be negatively economically, in, uh, ne negatively economically impacted by the exchange rate, which benefited the money changers and the temple administration rather than the people. There was a markup when you bought into the temple's coinage. This seems to be the system that Jesus is uh, critiquing. In Mark, Jesus' critique of the temple's economic exploitation of the poor is even more pronounced. Um, he takes aim not just at the exchange system, but by the very way in which the temple tax operates, because Jews were expected to pay uh, a regular tax to the temple to keep its operations running. And in Mark, Jesus's, the entire lead-up to Palm Sunday is full of Jesus' critiques of the temple. The most noteworthy incident here is, uh, is found in the story of the widow's mite. Um, the story of the widow's mite is frequently read as a story where Jesus is praising the widow's generosity, um, but that's actually not what's happening at all. Uh, you know, everybody gives into the temple treasury, the widow gives two small copper coins, and Jesus says she gave everything that she had to live on. Oftentimes that's taken as a praiseworthy thing, the unfortunate thing is that there's, you have to provide the tone yourself for, for the comment. Um, and it's clear from the context that uh, when Jesus says to his disciples, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. Jesus isn't praising her generosity here. He's not, he's not saying anything really about her specifically. Um, he's critiquing the temple's regressive taxation system. He's angry that she's required to put in anything at all. He's essentially asking, why is this poor woman required to give everything she has while all these wealthy folks are required to give such a small percentage of what they have? Why not exempt her from the tax and require them to give more? This is why he exits the temple in the very next verse, predicting that the whole thing is going to be torn down. He's angry. The Jerusalem elite benefited from these kinds of arrangements that happened in the temple, both the exchange system and the taxation system. Becoming fabulously wealthy from the income coming into the temple through tithes, offerings, and the temple tax. Meanwhile, many members of the Jewish peasantry were going without basic needs. Jesus was fully aware that this problem wasn't simply a problem internal to Israel, however. It, didn't, it wasn't a problem that was reducible down to bad leadership of the temple. This arrangement happened with the Roman Empire's blessing and encouragement. See, Rome had a habit of striking such arrangements with conquered people groups. To quote J. Nelson Crable, 
Despite its considerable military power, Rome did not have enough soldiers to hold a far-flung empire in subjugation by force alone. As is necessary for the success of any empire, key leaders among subject peoples had to side with the dominant power and help to keep their countrymen aligned with it. Indigenous leadership had to be co-opted, in other words. Those Jewish elites who agreed to act as cheerleaders for Roman rule could expect considerable personal rewards for their service to Rome. Their efforts to solidify Roman rule in the region were rewarded with a privileged status that allowed priests, members of the Sanhedrin, and the Herods to enrich themselves at the expense of the average Jew. The authority of the temple elite and the authority of Rome had become so intertwined in this period that for the average Jewish peasant, it was difficult to tell them apart. The protest that happens on Palm Sunday thus strikes both at Caesar's rule in the region and at those who benefited most from the current operations of the temple because the current operations of the temple were hammered out in, in, as a partnership between those two entities which is why Jesus' followers proclaim his kingship rather than the kingship of Caesar during the protest, and Jesus decries the economic abuses of the temple. It's, it's all part of the same thing. There's an extra layer here, however, that is worth considering. Jesus was not the only person to come forward during this time claiming to be the Messiah while Israel was under Roman rule. There were other messianic candidates that came forward at roughly the same time. The most famous of these individuals, aside from Jesus himself, was an individual by the name of Simon Bar Kokhba, who led a rebellion against Rome in the early second century. To understand how Jesus' protest would have been interpreted in his own time, it's helpful to pay attention to what these other messiahs like Simon Bar Kokhba did. More than one of these potential messiahs preceded by, first of all, raising a large body of followers, second, marching on the Jerusalem temple, third, seizing all of the money in the temple treasury, fourth, taking the weapons that are in the temple armory, and then fifth, arming their followers and using the money to bankroll a military revolt against Rome, using the temple as their base of operations. That was the typical sort of messianic playbook. Jesus checks only the first two boxes. He raised a large body of followers, and he marched on the Jerusalem temple. Right? So the assumption might, was probably that he was going to go, and go forward with the other, the other items on the checklist. But unlike the messiahs who sought to rule by military might... Jesus takes over the temple grounds nonviolently, and rather than arming a fighting force, he turns the place into a, into a school and a clinic. He teaches and he heals in the temple courtyard. And then he just leaves all of a sudden, rather than making this place his base of operations. He just kind of abdicates, right? This fact explains two things about Jesus' story. First, it explains why, in Luke's version of the story, which our four readers read up here, 
Some Pharisees are freaked out when they see Jesus leading a protest march into Jerusalem with his, fathers, with, with his followers, declaring him to be a king rival to Caesar, uh, asking God to liber- liberate them from Roman rule. That's what Hosanna means. It means uh, save us. Uh, the implied thing is deliver us from the rule of the Romans. Um, These Pharisees that are alarmed when they see the protest march going past, they cry out to Jesus, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. The reason why they do this is because they're afraid that if Rome sees this procession into Jerusalem, they'll see it as another Jewish insurrection. And if the Romans think that the Jews are participating in another insurrection, They'll send the Roman legion to brutally slaughter anyone they think might be involved. That's why the Pharisees are freaked out when they see this. But Jesus refuses these Pharisees' request, saying that if the disciples drew silent, the stones around them would continue continue in the protest chant that's already begun. The second thing that this explains is it explains why Pilate experiences so much confusion over Jesus' guilt or innocence during Jesus' trial. What Jesus does in this protest initially looks and sounds like any other Jewish insurrection. But when Jesus does not attempt to arm his disciples, when he does not shed any blood, and when he leaves the temple grounds voluntarily, he breaks dramatically from the script that was established by other Jewish rebels. Pilate decides to have him executed anyway, just to be on the safe side, because this looks enough like an insurrection that, you know, better safe than sorry, Pilate figures. And everything about Jesus' execution signals clearly that Rome interpreted him as a Jewish rebel leader who tried to establish a kingdom independent, independent of Rome. Uh, it's shown in the choice to crucify him rather than submit him to some other form of capital punishment. It's shown in the fact that he's dressed up as a king and then in a mocking sort of way and then beaten by the soldiers. Uh, it's shown in the two people that he's crucified between, two other rebels, uh, it's, it's shown in the fact that his charge sheet on the cross says King of the Jews. Um, you know, all of those things establish very clearly how Rome interpreted what Jesus was doing. That's why the events of Palm Sunday are almost certainly what motivated the Romans to kill Jesus. In my time growing up attending various churches, I've heard numerous rationales for why the Romans would care at all to have Jesus arrested and executed. And many of those reasons that Christians give for why it is that Rome killed Jesus don't make any sense. Some have said that it was because he showed compassion to the outcasts of society, that he ate with tax collectors and sinners. That's an accurate description of Jesus' behavior, but no government on this planet is going to have you executed for that. The Romans may have been a brutal and violent people who sadistically enjoyed torturing enslaved people and got their entertainment from watching people getting maimed and slaughtered in places like the gladiatorial games, 
But even the Romans wouldn't put a law in the books that would require execution for eating with people that the rest of society finds icky. Some have said that the Romans killed Jesus because he claimed he was the Son of God. While claiming to be the Son of God might be offensive in a Jewish context, Rome isn't going to care if someone goes about claiming to be the Son of God. The overwhelming majority of Romans were polytheists. They thought there were a whole bunch of gods running around out there. They might think it's funny that a Jewish peasant thought that he was a son of God or a son of the gods, depending on how you, you want to interpret what the centurion says in, uh, about Jesus in Luke. But there wouldn't be anything theologically offensive about the idea that Jesus was the son of God to a Roman audience. And the Sanhedrin, while members of the Sanhedrin might have found the claim that Jesus was the Son of God theologically offensive, the Sanhedrin had no authority to mete out capital punishment during the Roman era. They couldn't put people to death. Um, that's why in the narrative you see Jesus' enemies, his, his Jewish enemies, scrambling around trying to accuse Jesus of a crime that the Romans are going to care about. They're trying to like brainstorm charges that will stick. It's because only the Romans had the authority and the power to sentence a person to death. The decision whether Jesus lives or dies was Pilate's and Pilate's alone. No matter how much theater we see him doing in front of the crowds to convince them of his own innocence. It's his choice. However, if you came into Jerusalem and you were leading an uprising, that was absolutely something Rome would kill you for. And they did it to many other individuals. And hence, what Jesus does on Palm Sunday is absolutely what leads to his arrest and execution, which is why they follow almost immediately after this event. Without this protest action, it is unclear why Rome would care to arrest Jesus. Again, no Palm Sunday march and occupation, no cross. No cross, and the central event in the Christian story is gone. That's why the Palm Sunday protest is one of the few events narrated in all four of the Gospels. It's that central to any understanding of Jesus' ministry. There are two really important things that follow from this. The fact that without Palm Sunday, there would be no crucifixion. The first is that protest is sacramental within the Christian tradition. We march because Jesus marched. We occupy because Jesus occupied. We risk arrest because Jesus risked arrest. We disobey because Jesus disobeyed. When we do those things, we make Christ present again in this world. That doesn't mean that we participate in forms of nonviolent civil disobedience unnecessarily, without planning and deliberation, or without a deep prior discernment. But it does mean that we can expect to be called to participate in nonviolent civil disobedience at multiple points in our lives because the powers that be still seek to oppress, oppress human beings in various different ways.
The second important thing that follows from the fact that without Palm Sunday there is no cross is that participation in nonviolent resistance is part of what it means to bear the cross. And that's true whether that participation could result in death or not. If it risks a response by the powers, a retaliatory response by the powers, that is bearing the cross. This is a point that black liberation theologians such as James Cone have made over and over again in their writings. In one of his last published writings, Cone reflects on why he resisted Martin Luther King Jr.'s belief in redemptive suffering for so long. Women, people of color, and other groups have been asked at so many points to bear their cross by suffering for the continued benefit of systems that are unjust. Not all suffering is redemptive, Cohn reminds us. Some forms of suffering reinforce structures that simply cause more suffering. And because of that, Cohn says, not all suffering is the same thing as bearing the cross. But Cohn did eventually come to believe that King was right, that there is a form of suffering that is redemptive. And that form of suffering is the kind that comes only, one ha- only after one has stood up to the powers and challenged their authority. It is the kind of suffering that bears the wrath of the powers as one resists them. That is what bearing the cross is. Palm Sunday helps to remind us that Jesus himself would not have borne his cross if he had simply suffered in subjugation to Roman and temple rule. He bore the cross in resisting them. This is an important thing for Mennonites to remember. During Guy Hirschberger's tenure as perhaps the most influential Mennonite ethicist in the denomination, Hirschberger claimed that the peace witness of the Mennonite church ruled out participation in civil disobedience. He said this because he believed that nonviolent resistance, even when it remained nonviolent, was still coercive. And coercion of any form was antithetical to Jesus' call to peace. As such, Hirschberger discouraged Mennonites from participating in marches, sit-ins, boycotts, and even from joining unions based upon the idea that if you joined a union, you might be called to participate in a strike at some point. Why Hirschberger believed this, I can only speculate. I suspect his understanding of nonviolent resistance was influenced too much by the Protestant ethicist Reinhold Niebuhr rather than by Gandhi, King, Chavez, or any of its actual practitioners. Niebuhr had the same mistaken view of nonviolent resistance that Hirschberger had, albeit as someone who was not a pacifist. Whatever the reason, Hirschberger got it wrong. He got the narrative of Jesus' life wrong by failing to to realize the presence of nonviolent resistance in Jesus' own ministry. And in telling other Mennonites not to march, not to sit in, and not to strike, he wasn't just misinforming them of the biblical narrative. He was telling them not to bear the cross. 
And so thank God we have Palm Sunday uh, thoroughly ensconced in the church's liturgical calendar. It gives us time to reflect on exactly the reason why the events we commemorate this upcoming week unfolded. It gives us time to reflect on the role of civil disobedience in our own lives and in our own era. For when we march, when we sit in, when we strike, we are given the opportunity to make Christ present in the world again. We are given an opportunity to bear the cross.